Kyle, Jacob Austin here, owner of QS.Sound, and welcome to episode 9 of the Subcontractors Blueprint, the show where subcontractors will learn how to ensure profitability, improve cash flow, and grow their business. Today's episode is number 9, and we're going to talk about weather delays. As I'm recording today, I've been out for a walk with my two kids. On a sunny July day, we consulted the weather forecast prior to heading out. And what we saw was there's a little bit of cloud, but this should be dissipating and getting sunnier as the day went on. What we got was the wind blew in some nice clouds, which promptly soaked us at around about the furthest point from home. And that just underscores the point. The weather forecasters can't get it right. So when we're putting a contract together, what makes us think we're going to get it right? Well, the weather could be described as one thing. Unpredictable. We've got the delights of winter when we know it's going to be cold, but we never quite know how cold. And we know we probably will get some snow at some point. We can pretty much guarantee that there'll be a few days where the AA says it's too snowy for us to drive and to stay at home because we're all going to die out there. But by the time you've got to the top of the road and found the bus route that's been nicely gritted, there's little sign of snow apart from a little row of mush down the middle of the road. And a lot of fuss gets made over nothing. We've got the delights of spring, where God knows when it's actually going to rain, or for how long. But you can bet that parts of the day will be interrupted by sudden showers out of nowhere. We've got our delightful summer, which in spite of being the warmest season, is also home to some of the biggest volumes of rain. Having read the statistics so I could come up with a weather analysis for my NEC project, Quite consistently, July is the wettest month of the year, as measured by both the volume of rain and the number of days with rain. Then autumn, typically at least a little more mild than winter and summer, can be dry as a bone, or it can be wet and windy and miserable. I can't be the only one out there to have got those handy Alexa notifications to advise that there's a Met Office weather warning. You're on yellow alert for thunderstorms. And then later in the day, you realise, what thunderstorms? And alongside this, we've got our lovely media publishing all manner of headlines around temperatures rising. Britain's faced worst storm of the year as Met Office issues six weather warnings. Snow to close all airports and cause traffic chaos. Then we wait for it to hit and two days of sneeting and we're back to normal. At least it's something to talk about. But as a subcontractor, you need to know what are the right approaches to take. You need to take a view on how many days you're going to lose here and there. And you need to be aware of what you can recover and what you're entitled to under your subcontract. And because nothing's simple in life and certainly not in construction, the two main forms of contract we use in the UK happily have different approaches. This means whether you're working on a JCT contract or an NEC contract, you're going to have different entitlement to time and to cost and different hurdles to get over to get there. So the first thing that you're going to need to know is what form of subcontract are you working under? The NEC contract has a quite a defined procedure for weather, whereas as is typically the case across all of the JCT contracts since the beginning of time, they've left things a little bit woolly. So I'll start by looking at the JCT 
And remembering back to episode four where we spoke about extensions of time, the JCT sort of has a loose philosophy of things that are the fault of the employer, if you like, are events that come with a relevant matter and are therefore chargeable for prelims and delay costs and so on. But events such as the weather, which are nobody's fault in reality, are seen as neutral and they get this halfway house of you can get an extension of time, but you're not entitled to the associated cost recovery. Then in this instance, to trigger the relevant event, which is what will get you your extension of time, we've got a little bit more of a subjective position to get around. So the relevant event for weather under JCT contract says exceptionally adverse weather conditions. Typically, the meaning of exceptionally adverse has no real definition under the contract, and there's also no definition or no explanation given in the associated guidance notebook, which is sort of an explained by the author set of books that sit alongside the various contracts. So then, where else can we look? There's also little legal precedent being set by the courts on exceptionally adverse and what that means. So on the one hand, that's good because it's a bit more flexible. But on the other hand, that's bad because without a definition, it leaves you in a place of what do I actually price when I'm starting the job? What risk am I actually holding? Because I don't have a hard and fast calculation to be able to say it's X times Y. And one thing that you may wish to do in this situation is to just have a conversation about it. If you're at a pre-start meeting and there's a discussion around the program, you might want to ask the question or maybe raise it as any other business. If we encounter bad weather, how should we calculate an extension of time? Because it may be the case that the contractor being pragmatic would look to rely on a similar sort of one in 10 year weather event like you find in the NEC contract. Um, maybe you could agree something fairly straightforward. But the principle on this is that it's only the exceptionally adverse weather that you get the extension of time for. So that means that if it were to snow in June, which is pretty much unheard of, you'd be entitled to your extension of time for that. But in what we now know is the wettest month in the year, in July, if you lost a lot of days due to rain, that would likely be considered normal. So then you wouldn't be entitled to that unless you could prove that the volume of rain or the number of days lost were exceptional. And then it would only be the exceptional few days over and above what might be normal or certainly considered normal that you would get the extension of time for. And what is generally accepted as a principle is that the weather encountered has got to be exceptional for the time of year and location. So if you're doing some work on a remote island and the probability of windy days is particularly high, you have to know about that, think about it in advance and make sure that the program that you're agreeing to has got enough float or enough downtime days for the time of year you'll be doing that work. And the next thing to point out is that it's down to the contractor to assess and award an extension of time that he estimates to be fair and reasonable. And this fair and reasonable element is something that you want to play on when it comes down to the knockings and agreeing the outcome. And that basically puts the onus on you as the subcontractor to convince or persuade the contractor that the weather that you've had to deal with 
is accepting on the adverse. Now, under the JCT contract, as we've already mentioned, this is considered a sort of a neutral event, being as neither party is to blame for the event happening. The contract, therefore, doesn't punish either party. It lets each person bear their own cost. So the contractor will have to stand the cost of his prelims. The client downstream to them, because the weather is affecting the whole contract, will have to stand the cost of their liquidated damages, whatever loss that they will make as a result of not having that building on time. And in that same light, the subcontractor, you will have to bear the cost of your own prelims and your own time lost due to the weather. So in episode four, we looked at how and where to issue your notice. And historically, there's been little requirement to try and overly substantiate these sort of claims. But in more recent times, more and more evidence is required to get the things agreed. And it may be a case of looking at the last, say, 10 to 12 years of weather records for your location and ascertaining that way, firstly, what the normal weather range is for your region, and then secondly, what the exceptional weather has been. And again, we mentioned in episode four some ways of keeping records of various delaying events, but those were largely down to delayed access or disruption and that kind of event. With weather, it really needs a daily record, and this will be where your site diary comes into its own. Because what you need to be able to do here is to demonstrate what's been delayed and how long for. And remembering some key things that stop production at all, such as cranes being winded off, might have a different impact and a different threshold for what exceptionally abnormal is than rain for the same period. Now, with your commercial hat on, want to remember what we just mentioned previously, that there is no relevant matter that sits alongside the relevant event for weather. Now, we're not going to recover any cost for this delay. So whilst you might want to notify the event at the time, you might consider when you get further down the line whether you actually want to submit a claim for an extension of time for weather or whether you've got better events that have also caused you an issue and are easy enough to prove that you might be able to recover money again. Because the extension of time mechanism is saving you from contra charges and saving you from liquidated damages, but it's not earning you anything without a loss and expense claim. And this event isn't going to entitle you to that. But if you haven't been delayed by anything else, that's a bit of a moot point, and you should be pursuing this to do away with the risk of LADs and contra charges for being late. But it is just a note of caution because a lot of people have said to me in the past that when you get the time, the costs follow, and this is one of those situations where that just isn't the case. And what you don't want to do as well is if you have got genuine other delaying events, is give your contractor a way out of paying you for those events by suggesting that the weather was a bigger issue than it really was. Now, I've certainly had some of my more old-school clients take this approach, and it wouldn't be unheard of for a contractor to do the same, where rather than look to grant an extension of time for events that would entitle you to an extension of time with cost, say, for example, if there are lots of variations and that substantially increased your period on site, but there was also this delaying weather event, some client agents and contractors might be slyly awarding an extension of time for weather and sometimes in quite generous periods 
as a means to avoiding paying the cost for prelims and prolongation. But this might be a way that you could do a bit of horse trading to ultimately secure the extension of time that you want without it being too punitive upstream. And this is again why your site diary and your delay records really are a must to keep on top of. Now by comparison, the NEC suite of contracts, including the subcontract, have got a really quite prescriptive and objective way to calculate and deal with weather delays. It gives a clear description within the clause itself, which says a weather measurement is recorded within a calendar month before the completion date for the whole of the work and at the place stated in the contract data, the value of which, by comparison with the weather data, is shown to occur on average less frequently than once in 10 years. And then a further note, only the difference between the physical conditions encountered and those for which it would have been reasonable to have allowed is taken into account in assessing a compensation event. So what this says is the weather records are taken on a monthly basis and compares to the 10-year average at the place stated in the contract data. So this isn't go and find whatever weather station gives you the best answer. There is a predetermined weather station within the contract data for recording weather. And if that isn't a Met Office location, I would strongly suggest when you're discussing the contract with your contractor that you get it revised so that it is. Then the last note of the clause makes it really clear that you only get paid for the difference between the actual weather recorded and the one in 10 year value. Now the beauty of using a Met Office as the weather monitoring station is that they've done this Time and time again, if you ring up your local Met Office, the one that's specified in the contract, they will be able to give you a report which shows exactly what the one in 10 year events are and it makes it a real simple demonstration of what your entitlement is. There is a little point to think about on the selection of which weather station you're going to use, but hopefully this will have been thought about by the contractor when they've agreed their position with their client, and they will just be rolling down the same agreement that they've got upstream down to you in the subcontract. Essentially, most contracts will do this so that they end up in a back-to-back situation. But that is that you want a station which roughly replicates what you're going to experience. And 90% of the time, that will be the nearest one to you. But you do want to bear in mind that that might not always be the case. If that nearest station is at the top of a hill and you're in a valley and you're trying to prove that there's been an abnormal amount of cold days, the temperature at the top of the hill is likely to be lower. So sure it won't be an issue, but you just want to make sure that that weather station makes sense. There are four measurements that are taken by default in the NEC contract, and those are the cumulative rainfall, the number of days with rainfall of more than 5 mil, as in millimetres, the number of days with minimum air temperature less than 0 degrees Celsius, and the number of days with snow lying at blank hours GMT. And it's a fill in the blank with what you and the contractor agree, probably 9 o'clock in the morning. Notice the absence of one particular thing, which is the wind. So you may also want to negotiate into this list a further statement 
to factor in wind speed or number of days with high wind speed. And before doing that, this is only really going to start becoming relevant if you're working with a crane. And what you want to think about here is the crane that you're going to use, how is that going to be affected by wind, if at all? And also the company that you're going to work for, have they got any policies around the use of cranes in given wind speeds? Again, something you might want to agree with the contractor or certainly ask them about. Because if they're going to stop you lifting when the wind speed reaches X, you ought to be in a position where you both know about it. So you can do a bit of research and price accordingly for crane visits and so on. There are some other practical issues that you might want to raise and discuss if you're working on a site which is miles and miles long. Thinking of you several engineers out there, the site might need to be divided up into sensible areas to try and cover the different events that might happen along the running length of the site, noting that conditions in one place might well be different to another. Remember what I mentioned to you about the location noted in the contract about where that measure gets taken. If you're working on the coast or in a remote kind of location, just bear in mind that there may be some extra risk and bear in mind that the closest actual Met Office site might not be the most realistic one or the most reflective of your weather issues. And what happens when you get your weather report is it may well count all the rainy days that you've had and all the windy days that you've had, but you can't add the two things together. So the combined effect of various different weather events might sort of total up into one large delay. But annoyingly, each event on its own could be within the 1 in 10 year parameters for that kind of event, meaning that you're then not entitled to recover any time for it. And then finally, the prescription in the contract is that the weather is measured month to month, which sounds fine on the face of it, but when you think nobody tells the weather to start at the 1st of March and end at the end of March, it might well start on the 18th and run through to the 18th of April. But when you consider the two independent months, you might be looking at a particularly quiet month of March up until the 18th, and then April being fairly quiet after the 18th. And in spite of having a period of 31 days of a really bad weather event, because of the way they've fallen, in the distinct months in which you've got to measure the weather, you might not actually have any entitlement. But I actually think that the compensation event for weather is a lot more usable and a lot more user-friendly than the JCT version. Certainly it's a lot less open to abuse because it's so prescriptive that it can't be argued with and it really is just a matter of getting your Met Office record and seeing how what has happened compares to the one in 10 year figures. And a really easy calculation to be made of what falls over and above the expectations now, conversely, when you think about what you're entitled to as a change, what this tells you about in reverse is what you actually need to price into the job. And if you think about it in terms of, I can only get an entitlement to the one or two days that are actually proven to be worse than the one in 10 year average, what you've got to do is price at least the one in 10 year average into your contract. So that when you're negotiating your contract sum, you've got a base period of time and prelim, and then you've got
we've got an adjustment for the weather risk. And I sat there and negotiated this with a client who started off by trying to beat me up with this clause in particular and said, well, this is really defined. You are entitled to extensions of time for all of this weather beyond one in 10 years. And we argued about it for quite some time, but eventually we got to the realisation that one in 10 years is pretty infrequent. But I've got to price in all of that weather for the one in five, one in six, one in seven and so on year events as well, because they will likely crop up. I will likely lose program time and we both know I won't be able to go back and get an extension of time or compensation event for it. So if you think about it in those terms, it does actually act as a bit of a negotiation tool for you. And remember that bit that you can negotiate in or try to is something that you'll be entitled to draw down whether the whether events happen or not. So whilst you have got a clear case for stating some entitlement, what you've also got is a bit of a pragmatic approach required to apply some kind of probability factor to the potential delays. And that gives you a bit of a scope for being flexible in that negotiation. Alternatively, you might be able to use that to your advantage and get the contract to take some of that risk, being that if they're not willing to pay you to take the risk, and then they want to hold some of it themselves, then it might be a case where you can agree a, say, one in five year weather event triggers a compensation event. It's worth a discussion at the very least, remembering that once the contract is set, you're stuck with what's in the black and white. And the thing to remember in these NEC contracts is that time and cost are one and the same mechanism. So once you've proven that the time has been lost, your entitlement is to recover the cost and the time. And we've got to remember also the rules for notifying compensation events. The one golden rule that you can't get away from is the notification period of seven weeks. So remember to get that notice in before that time has expired. I suppose what that gives you the opportunity to do is by the end of, say, January, when you know you've had a overly cold January, on the 1st of February, you can go approach your Met Office location for their report and you've got an instant proof there whether your entitlement is there or not and when that comes back in a couple of days you can raise your compensation event you will need to record the event on the program so that you can demonstrate the impact on the ultimate completion date and just how much the prelims and the site period has been protracted by the event hopefully you can see there the contrast between the two contract approaches and I've helped to explain some of the whys and wherefores of weather delays and some of the pitfalls around it. If you refer back to episode four, there are some further pointers as to how to go about submitting a notice that you should find of use alongside this. And thanks all for tuning in to today's show. If you like what you've heard and you want to learn more, please do look us up at www.us.zone where you can subscribe to our training and support system for like-minded subcontractors. In there, you'll find templates, how-to videos, interviews, and more, less than the price of your cup of coffee per day, and you can cancel any time. Also, we're on all of your favorite socials at QS.Zone. Thanks again, everyone. I've been Jacob Austin, and you've been awesome.